We're now in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 to 14. Hebrews 7, 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. As we think of his ministry to us, his person and his ministry to us. We pray that you'll give us a greater appreciation for the redemption we have and your marvelous way of salvation, that Christ alone is all we need and Christ alone is our salvation. In his name we ask, amen. amen. Well, in this chapter, as we have seen, the apostle has been focused on determining and arguing that Christ is the only way of salvation. And he is going to do so for a couple of more chapters. He's going to do so from chapter 7 to chapter 10. He has already done so in the early chapters, and then he's going to come to this point again in chapter 7 to 10. But in chapter 7 to 10, particularly, he is focused on the fact that the only sacrifice, the only death that could pay for our sins is the death of Christ, and not any animal sacrifice. He is focused on arguing and proving that the ritual law in relation to the feasts, in relation to the temple service, the temple sacrifices, that those sacrifices were unable to save anyone from sin. That there was only and always one way of salvation. That from the time of Abraham until the time of the end of the world, from the time of Adam even, until the end of the world, his argument is that there is only one way of salvation. That's in Jesus Christ. There is no salvation in the animal sacrifices. Whether a blemished animal or unblemished animal, there's no salvation in animal sacrifices. Those sacrifices were instituted by God himself, yet God never intended the people to trust in that for their salvation, for their forgiveness of sins. Now, if that is the case with God in the written word of God, in the law of Moses, who said that and meant that, then the people should never think that those animals would suffice for the redemption of their souls. Now, if the people of Israel, the Jews, or the Hebrew people could not and should not think that, we should also note that they and we should not ever think that someone else like Mohammed, Joseph Smith, Charles Tage Russell, or any number of false teachers and false prophets of any religion of the world could have the way of salvation, could properly explain to people who need salvation the way of salvation. All of those are false teachers, they are false prophets, and they have nothing to offer for the redemption of our souls. There's only one way. And furthermore, 
Salvation throughout history and even in our time until the end of the world cannot and could not ever be by an act of human will. Could never be by a good deed that we perform. One good thing we perform, two good things we perform, or even a thousand or ten thousand good things we perform throughout our life, nothing we do can save us from sin. Nothing we do can save us from sin. We are not good in and of ourselves. We don't do more good than we do bad. It's not in ourselves that our salvation resides. It's not because of our goodness that we have anything good in our life. It is purely by the grace of God that we have anything physically good in our life and purely by the grace of God that any good thing spiritually is in our life. And the spiritual is more important than the physical. So if everything that we have is based on the goodness of God, the grace of God given to us, then there's nothing good that originates out of us that we can say to God, let's sit at the table, and God, you bring whatever you want to the table, and I'll bring whatever I have to the table. And on that day of judgment, when we sit at the table, you'll examine what I presented at the table, and I'll be granted heaven. No, it is never like that. It is always only in Christ. He alone is perfect. He alone is the way of salvation. From Adam until the end of the world, from Genesis to Revelation, Christ is the only way of salvation. We have seen so far in chapter 7, he's been proving that though Abraham was a man of faith, the father of the faithful, a great man of faith, and though he is a model and example for us, He is less than Melchizedek, and he is less than Christ. Therefore, if Abraham knew he was less than Melchizedek, which he has already proven in the first ten verses of this chapter, he's already proven that Abraham knew he was less than Melchizedek, and that he needed to submit to Melchizedek, that Melchizedek was the source of blessing for Abraham, not Abraham blessing Melchizedek. He knew all of that. And so if Abraham knew all of that, we should not even presume that anyone later than Abraham is greater than Abraham. And we should not presume that anyone later than Abraham is superior to Melchizedek. So we must know who was Melchizedek and what did he represent? What was his ministry? Why was he a priest? And why is it that the coming Christ, the coming Messiah, has a priesthood that is in the order of Melchizedek. Not Abraham, not Moses, Levi, Aaron, but Melchizedek. Why? Why is that the case? Why did God do it that way? Why did God say it that way? Why? And the answer is because there's only one way to be saved from sins. Christ, which Abraham knew, Moses knew, Levi knew, Aaron knew, they all knew this. And this is what they would teach when they taught the people. So if they knew that, we should know that too. And not let anyone say there are different ways of salvation. That's why he's arguing the way he does in this section. So let's see specifically two main issues in relation to his argument in these verses. First in verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, 
for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? In verse 11, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood. Think about that. If the Levitical laws, the animal sacrifices, the guilt offering, the burnt offering, the various offerings that were offered in the temple, if that was the means of perfection, isn't that what we need? We are sinners and we need to be sinless. We need to be perfect. If that was the means of perfection, his argument is, if that were the means instituted in the time of Moses, Moses lived 500 years after Abraham. Moses and Aaron lived 500 years after Abraham. If he, he says here, if perfection was through this Levitical Mosaic age priesthood, why speak of another priesthood later? Why speak of that? If that is the way of perfection, then why abolish it? Why change it? Why get rid of it? If that way is the way of perfection, is that not a logical question? Whose answer is, well, it was not the way of perfection. So we should not think it was the way of perfection. We cannot have a theology, which some people do, that the people in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Covenant, in, under the Levitical Covenant, they were saved by their faithfulness to those laws. To the extent that they were faithful to those laws, God would grant them salvation. So they were saved by works or by their own righteousness, their own good deeds, and not by Christ. Many people within Christianity, they believe that. Within Christianity, that is actually believed. But he's saying here, that is impossible. He's saying, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, why do we have to speak of another priest who comes, that is Christ our Messiah, who comes in the order of Melchizedek? That means that it was not intended for that purpose. Further, he says that this priesthood was on the basis, uh, or on the basis of the priesthood, the people received the law. All of those laws of the law of Moses, the 613 laws, and in particular, the ritual law, the laws of the sacrifices, the laws of the festivals, the ritual law, that ritual law was instituted because God wanted a priesthood to be established, the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood. He wanted that priesthood to be established. That's why he instituted the law. So if he instituted that priesthood because of the law, then the main issue is the priesthood because the law is just supporting the priesthood. The law is an annex to the priesthood. So the issue is, why the priesthood? Why the priesthood that would be changed? And he will get into it in chapters 8 and 9. The answer is that the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, was a symbolic way, a symbolic daily way for the people to understand that their sins deserved death. And in that case, it was the death of the animal. But if they were going to be redeemed from their sins, it would only be by faith in Christ's death, the coming Christ's death. That would be the only way of salvation. 
That's why it says in Hebrews 11.26 that Moses even, Moses who instituted this Mosaic covenant, this Levitical priesthood, Moses even knew that the reproach of Christ was greater riches. That is the death of Christ, the coming death of Christ was greater riches than all of the luxuries and, and uh, fame and fortune that he had in the court of Pharaoh. Because the death of Christ was invaluable to him. He believed in that. Further, he says in verse 11, he says, What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? We know from the previous passage, he's already argued that Levi and Aaron were subservient to Abraham. They were descendants of Abraham and subservient to Abraham in various ways. Now, if they were subservient to Abraham and Abraham recognized it, and Abraham was subservient and under the authority of Melchizedek, then if another priest comes later to change the priesthood, to change the necessity of offering animals in the temple, if another priest comes later, what need is there, or what's the significance of it, if the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, was superior, or fixed and permanent? If someone comes later, then that must mean that that later priest is ordained by God to do what is necessary for our salvation. And not only that, but it is in the order of Melchizedek. When Christ comes into the world, as the prophets prophesied, he was not going to come as a descendant of Aaron, or a descendant of Levi, or a descendant of Moses. He was not going to come like that. He was not going to come under the authority of the Aaronic priesthood. He was not going to come with that priesthood of the animal sacrifices. He was not going to be a priest in that lineage to offer animal sacrifices. He would not do that, but Melchizedek. So if it is Melchizedek, as it says in Psalm 110, verse 4, it's quoted in Hebrews 7, 17. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. David prophesies by writing the words of God, that is, the words of the Father to his Son. God the Father says to the Son, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the time of David, 500 years after Moses, 1,000 years before Christ came into the world, David prophesies by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Father says to his Son, the Christ, the Savior, that the Savior, Christ, would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So, whatever Melchizedek preached, whatever he represented, Christ would have that priesthood which is the ultimate, the supreme, the superior priesthood. Because it is only that priesthood that is the means of salvation. Not the lesser priesthood, the symbolic priesthood of Levi or Aaron. Not that symbolic priesthood, but the ultimate, the effective priesthood of Melchizedek is what Christ possesses. Further, verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. 
When the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Remember verse 11. God's will or his desire, his purpose in having the priesthood be central has attached to it laws that govern that priesthood. And so he says, if a priest is going to come later according to the order of Melchizedek, that must mean that whatever laws need to be abolished must be abolished. They must be changed. Meaning that when Christ comes and dies according to the order of Melchizedek, he has that priesthood, he dies on the cross for our sins, then there's a different priesthood that lasts forever. Doesn't it not say in verse 17, you are a priest forever? Christ is a priest forever, not temporarily, but forever. And if he is a priest forever, then he's got the best, uh, best priesthood that he does not need to bequeath to anybody else. He does not need to transfer it to anybody else. Nobody else needs to have it. Only he has it because he is the supreme savior. He's the only savior. He possesses it forever. And so then, if he possesses it forever, his argument is, therefore, why trust in animal sacrifices? Why are you trusting in the death of an animal? You know, do you not know, that you people, you humans, are created in the image of God. Animals are not created in the image of God. So what makes you think that a dead animal... You should have died, but you put the animal to death in the sacrifice that the dead animal is going to pay for the salvation of your soul. What makes you think that? What makes you believe that? That's ridiculous. It's specious and even satanic because it's a deflection and a detraction from the only way of our salvation, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. Not the blood of an animal, but the blood of Christ. So that's why he's saying here, of necessity there takes place a change of law. He's going to argue later that these animal sacrifices are done away with. They are abolished. They are abrogated. They are destroyed. No more need for any animal sacrifices because Christ is the only way of salvation. So don't put your trust in those animals. Don't let those people who are creeping in and who are befriending you tell you well, there's a different way. And because we are Jews, the Jews' way of salvation is by animal sacrifices. The Gentiles' way of salvation is a different way. Let them believe in this Christ, this new person, this Christ. Let them believe in Christ, but our way is these animals. No. The way of salvation for Jew and Gentile, from the beginning of the world till the end of the world, is only in Christ. Only in Christ. So he says, the necessity of a change of law. They cannot argue against this logic. Everybody knows that. They cannot argue against this logic. And so they have to be forced in their mind to understand that what God has said, what God desires, what God has willed and purposed is consistent, it's harmonious, it's coherent from the beginning of the Bible till the end of the Bible. So if God is that way and everything is by the Holy Spirit, then why argue against God? Why dis have a dispute against God? Don't be contentious with God himself. If God says there's one way, then there's only one way. That settles it. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. 
Next is verse 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. We read earlier from Matthew chapter 1. It is evident from Matthew 1 that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham, Judah, David, until the time of Joseph and Mary. That he was a descendant of those patriarchs, Abraham, Judah, and then David. Those were the major ones mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. They're also mentioned in other places of Scripture. And he had no need, because it was so evident, for him to explain that this is the case. Because he says in verse 14, it is evident there was nobody in his time, in his generation, in the first century, as an apostle, 30, about 20 to 30 years after Jesus ministered, there was no need for him to say, you, you, you need evidence? You don't need evidence. You already know. Everybody knows that this Jesus of Nazareth was born of a descendant of David, who was a descendant of Judah, who was a descendant of Abraham, so forth. Everybody knows this. There's no dispute. That's why he says, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. But what's the big deal? If we know that fact, that historical fact, what's the big deal? The big deal is that because he was from Judah and this Messiah or Christ coming from Judah has the, the roles, the joint roles of king and priest. King and priest. We know, it's self-evident, that the priesthood was from Levi and Aaron, the tribe of Levi, and then the priestly family, the family of Aaron, that that's the way it was in the Mosaic Covenant. So then, if the prophets are preaching and teaching, listen, when Christ comes, he will be a priest, but he will not be a priest from the tribe of Levi, he will be a priest from the tribe of Judah. And what is the problem? The tribe of Judah throughout the history of the people was the tribe where the kings originated in the line of David. The tribe of Judah and the line of David was for the kings. But this Christ who is to come into the world will not be from Levi, so he won't have that priesthood. He'll be from the tribe of Judah and the line of David. He'll be a king because that's where the kings originate. But he'll also be a priest. He'll be a king, and he will be a priest. Now, where is this put together? One passage where this is put together is Psalm 110. Psalm 110, throughout the history of Judaism, it has been universally accepted as a messianic psalm. It has been accepted as a messianic psalm, a Christological psalm. They know that when David wrote this 1000 BC, that David was speaking of Messiah. Now, now, there are a few exceptions to that, and that is when Jewish commentators are looking for a way not to make this a reference to Christ, they detract from that. But otherwise, those who were looking at this in an obvious way, they were saying, of course this is about Christ, the Messiah. Notice what it says. 
It's a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In the first three verses, and also verses 5 to 7, does it not give this depiction that Christ is a king? Yes, of course it does. He's a king and a mighty warrior. A king and a mighty conquering warrior. But also notice verse 4. This same individual, Christ, is a priest forever. And God swore, and he won't renege on that. He won't change his mind. He swore and he said, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 1000 B.C., this one individual, the Christ, he is of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, and he's going to be a king and a priest. All of this is said right here in this psalm. That's why when our apostle in Hebrews 7 argues this, he knows that the people know all this. He knows that those who were well studied, those who heard, those who were brought up in the faith, in, Ju in the Judaist, uh, Judaistic faith, that they believed these things. They knew these things. That's why he's saying in verses 13 and 14, the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Okay, now, let me emphasize a couple of points with some cross-references so that we know and understand that even in the Old Testament, the faithful in the Old Testament, the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the Old Testament, they understood these things because it's all over the pages of the Old Testament. Let's understand that what is being said in Hebrews chapter 7 did not start to be preached by John the Baptist or Christ or Christ's apostles or from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost onwards. It wasn't as though things evolved, that their understanding of the, this truth evolved. No, it was already explained, already understood, already prophesied and believed in the Old Testament by the prophets and also by the saints. All the, of the saints, those true believers of the Old Testament, they knew these things. They believed these things. How can we say so? Let's see a few examples. First, on the subject of sacrifice. On the subject of sacrifice and the priesthood. 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. 
Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Here, Samuel instructs King Saul. King Saul put his confidence in sacrifices and thought that the animals would take care of everything. That God would be pleased with the animal sacrifices. And he's teaching him, no, God desires obedience. Your obedience is superior than the death of an animal. Superior to the death of an animal. Micah chapter 6. Micah the prophet. Micah chapter 6, verse 6. Micah 6, 6. The people pray like this. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings and, and with yearly, uh, yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The answer. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Here again, the prophet teaches the people that God desires obedience to your sacrifices. They're asking, does God want all of these animals? Does God want rivers of oil? Does God want even my firstborn child to be killed on an altar for the salvation of the soul? And God's saying, no, I want your obedience. I want you to obey. These are ways in which God is saying, you think that the animal sacrifices are the clincher, that they will take care of any disobedience. No, obedience is better than sacrifice, is the basic point. Furthermore, we find in Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verse 14, Psalm 51, 14, David has sinned, and now he is praying a prayer of confession and repentance. He says in Psalm 51, 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David acknowledges this fact that God does not delight in the sacrifice. If he delighted in the sacrifice, and that would bring his reconciliation between himself and God, then David says, I would give it. I would give you the animal sacrifices, whatever ones you wanted. But in fact, he's not pleased with them. And what God really wants is a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart. That's what he wants. He wants humility in us. He doesn't want the animals. Furthermore, Psalm 49. Psalm 49, verse 7. Psalm 49, verse 7. We read of how even people cannot save one another. Psalm 49, 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Isn't that what we desire? To live eternally and not undergo decay? Is that not what we desire? But how is that going to be accomplished? Is it going to be because one man redeems his brother? 
That is, you have a friend who dies in your place. Can that friend who dies in your place be the reason or the cost for the redemption of your soul? Can that be the basis for your soul being saved? No, he says. No, it says. It cannot happen that way. So if an animal cannot save us, as we just read, and if a human cannot save us, as we just read, then who can save us? Who can? And for that answer, Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verse 6. Psalm 40, verse 6. Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, is quoted in Hebrews 10, 5 to 7. Hebrews 10, 5 to 7. And there the apostle applies it to Christ. So we know that this is about Christ. Notice, these are the words of Christ, the Son of God, to the Father. The Son speaks to the Father, and he says this, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The Son of God says to the Father, when he comes into the world, he announces these words to the Father. And he says to the Father, sacrifice, meal offering, burnt offering, sin offering, you do not desire these, you do not require these. Now wait a minute. Did Moses not institute these? 1,500 years before Jesus came into the world, Moses instituted these. So in one way, God did desire and God did require because he expected them to do it. But for what reason? Not to save them from sins, but to be a symbol for the fact that they were sinners and needed redemption in the death of Christ. That's why Jesus says, in the true sense of desiring and requiring, God did not desire or require them for the salvation of people. No. That's why he says, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus came with a humble, obedient spirit, and he knew what was written in the books of the Old Testament, prophesying his coming. So he says, Behold, I come. I'm ready to come into the world and pay the penalty for the sins of my people. That's what he's saying here. And who wrote this? If you go up, read earlier in Psalm 40, it's David. So, the prophets in, in these psalms, they knew that their sins could not be forgiven by animal sacrifice, by human sacrifice, whether a friend's sacrifice or their firstborn child's sacrifice, only the sacrifice of Christ. Taught clearly in the Old Testament. Okay, and then another matter that we need to clarify and prove is that it would come from the tribe of Judah and the line of David. Judah and David. Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, Genesis 49, verse 10. This paragraph where we find verse 10 is addressed as a blessing to the tribe of Judah from Jacob or Israel, the father of the 12 sons. Judah is addressed in this passage and notice what he says of Judah. Jacob says this about 18 or 1900 B.C., even before Moses comes into existence, before the law of Moses. He says this about his son as a prophet. He says, 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49.10. He says that the scepter ruler's staff, which means that this one who is coming from the line of Judah is a king. He's a king. He's a ruler. And he is known here as Shiloh. Shiloh is another name for Messiah or Christ. Until he comes, and it says, And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That is, when the gospel is preached, that the peoples, the nations of the earth, shall submit to him. They will obey him. They will believe in him, is what his point is. Jacob says this of his son, Judah. Now, let's turn to Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18, where we will find that Boaz marries Ruth, and that marriage was not just the average marriage. It was a prophetic marriage, or in preparation for the future. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. What do you notice here? This genealogy goes from Perez to David. From Perez to David, and who was Perez? According to Genesis 38, he was a son of Judah. So from Judah will come the king. It will be the Christ coming from Judah. And then specifically through Judah's son, Perez. And then from Perez, we have David. And as we saw in Matthew chapter 1, we saw these, some of these same names in Matthew 1, 1 to 17, where we go from Judah to Perez to David to Christ. That's why it says that the Messiah would come from the line of Judah and from David, the family of David. This is why the Bible says that he is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5.5 says all of that. All of this was in the Old Testament. There was no surprise to those who had the Spirit of God, to those who had faith in the promises of God, and those who knew what the Bible actually said. There was no surprise. They were anticipating these things, just like Zacharias and Elizabeth, just like Anna, the prophetess, just like Simeon. All of this is in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Even before the events actually happened, they were living in anticipation of those events because they had faith in the coming of Christ. They were Jews, male and female, rich and poor. They were putting their faith in Christ. Therefore, let's believe in only one gospel. Let's believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Let's not put our confidence in any man-made religion, only the miraculous, prophetic, fulfilled religion of the Bible. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.